we are the bank acquirer, we are the payment service provider, we are the payment gateway, and we have our own aggregator. And so we can offer the entire suite all developed in-house. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. In recent years, it has become trendy to call yourself a tech company, even if you are anything but. However, Tinkoff is one of the world's largest and most profitable independent digital banks, and they really walk the talk when it comes to being a technology company. In 2006, Tinkoff started out as a branchless credit card issuer in Russia, and it now offers current accounts, tax support for businesses, lending, and a range of other products and services through a super app that any Western bank would envy. Today, your host, Ben Robinson is joined by Neri Tolerado, Tinkoff's Vice President of Strategy. And in this episode, they talk about Tinkoff's entrepreneurial spirit, which they say has no hierarchy or bureaucracy. And this is something that they plan on maintaining as they scale the difference between creating an ecosystem as opposed to a conglomerate of different goods and services, how Tinkoff has managed to create insane customer engagement compared to most banks by combining their content with their technology and more. Before joining Tinkoff, Neri was a top-ranked sell-side research analyst at Morgan Stanley. He earned his master's in finance and private equity from the London School of Economics and his bachelor's in international economics and management from Bocconi University. Enjoy the episode. Neri, thanks so much for coming on the Structural Shifts podcast. This is going to be quite a wide-ranging discussion, but I thought a good jumping-off point might be for you to tell us why you were so excited to join Tinkoff Bank. Because as as you just heard in the intro, for a long time you worked in bank equity research, so you were very familiar with the market and the different players. What was it about Tinkoff Bank that particularly excited you? Yeah, hi Ben. Thanks a lot for having me on, on this podcast. Great to be here. Look, so I, I worked for Morgan Stanley for seven years in, in equity research. One way or another, I always covered Russia, uh, although I'm not Russian. I did spend a, a large portion of my life there. And so uh, I do think of it as a bit of a second home So and, and spent a lot of time studying it and getting to know uh, the culture, the companies, etc. So when I started covering financials, I actually started covering Middle Eastern financials and then Central and Eastern Europe. And then finally, I got back to covering Russia. And as basically as soon as I started covering Russia, I realized that the Russian banking sector and more specifically Tinkoff was way ahead of anything else that we were seeing in Europe or even in other parts of emerging markets. And Tinkoff stood out as one of those financial players that was doing something genuinely different. Uh, and so I tended to write a lot of research about Tinkoff and to try to go into the, their business model. And that then coincided with me looking for something else to do because I had done equity research for seven years. And at the same time, Tinkoff was helping, looking for someone to help them pitch the story uh, and, and communicate with investors. And so I jumped at the opportunity because on the one hand, it was a great story that I knew I could be passionate about pitching. And on the other hand, because it was a company that was genuinely different from its culture, from its products, from its, yes. uh, you know, everything that they were doing. And so I took it as a very good opportunity to learn something new and to work with a team, which was extremely highly uh, regarded by, by the market and that has built a business from scratch, which is now probably one of the most valuable fintechs in the world. 
Well, okay, right. So that's there's a lot to dig into. Let's discuss a bit the Tinkoff story, and also let's talk a little bit about the Russian market and why you think it's ahead of the rest of Europe. So, as I understand it, Tinkoff was the first branchless banking service in Russia. How did it start out? Yeah, so it was founded in 2006, so predating arguably when the word fintech was coined. And the idea was by our by our founder, Oleg Tinkoff, to basically recreate a, a mini Capital One, early days Capital One in Russia. So he looked at the US and said, in the US, you've got know, two, three credit cards per capita. You look at Russia, you've got like 0.1, 0.2. Uh, no one has ever done anything like you know branchless banking before. And Oleg is a man of, of big bets. And so he said, let's try and go and do this. Uh, And so at the beginning, it was a credit card monoliner that used something that now sounds very outdated, but which was already very effective and very well popular in the US, which was direct mail. So very different company to obviously what it is is now, but it did teach us a lot about how to run a business. uh, And I'm sure we'll touch on it uh, later, you know, how to be analytical about a certain, uh, about your decision-making about and kind of being focused on the bottom line and actually generating profits. What was the point at which the the company pivoted from being just a lender without its own balance sheet, if you like, towards being a full deposit taking bank or digital bank, if you like? It, it was pretty early on because, as I said, the company was founded in 2006. Uh, and on the asset side, it had credit cards. And on the liability side, it had wholesale funding. Turns out that wholesale funding is not the best source of funding during a global financial crisis. Uh, especially if you're in a country like Russia, which was at the time highly uh, susceptible to shocks. And so right around that time, a decision was taken to try and to diversify the liability side of the balance sheet. And so to actually try and go into deposits and current accounts, which also coincided about the time with the ability to start moving the acquisition channels from direct mail to online. And once we cracked the ability to pay for deposit, to, to acquire deposits online, which obviously at the time were quite expensive deposits. Then we started building a liabilities franchise, which was deposits and current accounts. On the asset, you had credit cards. And that then built the founding blocks for the entire ecosystem to grow. How difficult was it to, to become a deposit taker? Because I seem to remember something like, um, and it might still be true today, right? That you, that you have to do KYC in person, right? You have to do face-to-face meetings if you want to onboard a customer. So how difficult was that to do from the point of view of a branchless or digital bank? Yeah, so that that was something that was you know that we had to figure out from the very beginning because even when we were a direct mail credit card monoliner, we still had to have a physical meeting with with the customer. So it's you know for the listeners that are not familiar with with Russia, it's not like in the Europe or in UK where you can download the Revolut app and then do the whole application and get a card and off you go. In Russia, the central bank still requires every new financial product, um, especially bank accounts, to be uh, certified in person. So there needs to be a physical meetings. Most banks will send you to the branch. We want it to be branchless. So we built a co- what we call a smart courier network of representatives that will meet you anywhere in Russia within 24 hours. And in the big cities, we're almost down to 30 minutes to actually deliver the product, take your picture, get your signature, whatever it has to be done for, for the KYC process. Um, and then off you go, you can start using your product. So that was something that we started using from the very beginning that we kept using once we started moving online. And I think you know the fact that you had a direct mail start and a, a, a an offline fulfillment that needed to be very very optimized. That from the very beginning instilled a culture of let's try to optimize every single process process yeah. that we have. Funnel analysis, you know how what what conversion is at each stage of the funnel, where it makes sense to optimize it. And so that was something that was instilled in the culture of the company very early on and helped us to then broaden the product set over time with the same kind of level of analysis and success eventually. What is the domestic K 
competitive environment look like? I guess with particularly with the smart career network you built, you you probably have some pretty ingrained competitive advantages or, or, or barriers to entry at least. Yeah, so Russia to some extent is a little bit of a walled garden, uh, maybe not as much as some of the Asian countries are, that, that we see, but definitely it's one of the few countries where Facebook is not the main social network, where Uber is not the biggest taxi, where uh, Google is not the biggest search. So you have a lot of local tech companies and they've made it very difficult themselves because they're very good competitors for the large foreign companies to actually uh, build their kind of pseudo-monopoly positions, let's say. From that perspective, it, it, it is a, a bit of a walled garden, but it's also very highly regulated. And so it's not you know a playing field where it's very easy to do anything. So there's still rules that you have to abide to, uh, and the rules can be quite strict, especially in the place in the space of financial services. I think what's different about Russia is that especially to relative to, to, to the Western world, is that um, the banks are very advanced. So you do have banks that have realized very early on in the existence, and not all banks, but a few definitely, that if you're just going to be a traditional bank with your traditional banking structure, your traditional bank employee, you're probably not going to last very long. And so, you know, namely ourselves and, and Spare Bank, but also a few others, they realized very early on that they needed to build a, a technology company. We were that from the start. And so, you know, if you and if you walk around the Tinkoff office, you wouldn't be able to, to discern it from a Google office or a Yandex office in terms of the average employee that's there. And in terms of the of the couriers and the offline KYC, that of course is a is an entry barrier. It is something that, you know, on the one hand, is a big operational feat that we've managed to build because again, we've got something like more than 5,000 couriers, smart couriers running around Russia at any one day doing more than 70, 80,000 deliveries per day. And so that requires obviously a lot of effort and a lot of, uh, a lot of investments. On the other hand, it's very difficult to recreate that. And so new players that wanted to come to the Russian market, they would have to figure out some kind of offline KYC, which keeps them out. And like everything, you've leveraged that, right? Because as I understand it, you're actually the largest last mile delivery service in Russia as well? One of. I mean, now obviously the e-commerce players are starting to to, to build their own logistics network. So I don't I don't know quite exactly who's the largest uh, last mile delivery, but uh, for quite a long time, we definitely were. I just wanted to square something because you said rightly that Russia is a bit of a walled garden, but at the same time, you said that the banks appreciated very early on the need to be very progressive, you know, very invest in technology, make, make the services digital. How do you reconcile those two things? Where did the pressure come for for those, for the banks to be, you know, so adventurous. I think to some extent, it's the fact that the banking sector in Russia is much uh, younger, so you don't have the same old legacy systems and legacy banks that you had in, in Western Europe that have been around for 40, 50 years, right? You know, the Russian market was rebooted a couple of times during the 90s, and so was the banking sector. So there was definitely a, a possibility for a lot of banks to to, to leapfrog and have a better starting point compared to a lot of European and Western banks. And then I think I would actually put it down to a, to, to a few people that were somewhat visionaries from that perspective. So again, Oleg Tinkoff coming up and, and saying, we're going to be the first branchless bank in Russia. I think from, from Sparebank's side, the, the CEO, Herman Greff, realized very early on that Sparebank had a huge possibility to build something very advanced, very digital, very technological, and, and off they went. The company's face has been through at least three crises, right, in its short history. To what extent do you think the crises you've been through have made it made the business much stronger? Absolutely. So the three crises are the the 08 or 09 
crisis, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the 2014-15 crisis, which was Russia-specific. It coincided with oil prices halving. Um, it coincided with the whole geopolitical issues around Russia and sanctions being put on, and it could, and then led to basically a full-blown banking crisis and ruble devaluation, and it was all the stars aligned for, for for what was a very vicious crisis for the banking sector, and then more recently, obviously the the, the COVID crisis, which arguably out of the three was the one that was uh, less vicious from a from a banking sector perspective and, and from the impact it had on, on the company. But so very early on, we realized that we needed a business model that would allow us to accelerate and break very quickly because, because we needed to, to withstand these shocks. And so every time that a new crisis came, we already had some experience at hitting the brakes and making sure that we could button down the hatches and, and wait for the storm to pass. And obviously, every crisis teaches you something something slightly new, because on the one hand, you know, if you look at 2014-15, there was a big liquidity crisis in the, in the market. So you learn how to deal with liquidity. In 2020, with, with COVID, you learn more to deal perhaps about you know things that might go off with your credit risk models, because that wasn't a variable that you were predicting before. So every time you you learn something slightly new, but I think the uh, the mentality of being able to accelerate and break very quickly. That's something that you know you learn in the first crisis and then you can adapt over time. Over time as well, our business also became a lot more diversified with a lot more revenue sources and a lot more customers. And we weren't all reliant, to, you know, all our eggs were not in one basket. So that obviously complements the, uh, you know, the, uh, the resilience of the business. Let's get into the business model a bit more now. So you've alluded to some of this already by talking about the extent to which the company takes an e-commerce lens when it thinks about customer acquisition and funnel management and so on, which is, I think is already quite interesting within the context of a banking organization. But one thing that maybe people don't realize is that you, you mentioned it there, that the company is actually very quite, is actually pretty diversified. And for example, you have a travel agency as part of the group. What, what was the rationale for, for launching a travel agency? So I think, again, it's worth maybe taking a slight step back and realize that we started with credit cards. Then because of that, uh, we learned you know, how to lend. And let's say we added other credit products. On the liability side, we were getting more and more retail customers coming through deposits and current accounts. And these customers had other financial needs beyond credit cards. So on top of the lending products, we developed a retail brokerage platform. We built, we built an SME business, an acquiring business, an insurance business. But the idea is that was that if we really want to engage with a customer, build loyalty, get all the data we need to have to offer them a tailored experience, we need to find services that are going to be rewarding for them and that they can use very frequently. And one of the hypotheses was that a traveling, uh, a traveling agency where we could offer a very um, neat experience in the cost to the customers within the app, and we could offer significant rewards um, would be something that would be liked by our customer base and would drive engagement. And it turns out that now about a fourth of all the travel expenditure of our customers, and obviously we can see what they're spending money on, about a fourth of all that travel expenditure actually happens through Think of Travel through the mobile app. So it was clearly the right hypothesis and then led us to think about other businesses and other uh, non-financial services that we could integrate to drive that kind of engagement that we, we could get people to spend some more of their time and eventually their money on our on our Tinkoff app, increasing the number of touch points that we would have with them. You use the term engagement. I'm just going to cite a statistic here from your, this is your most recent investor presentation, where you say that you have 2.4 million 
daily average users and 7.6 million monthly average users. So basically 25% of your customer base pretty much uses the app daily. So that's, that's an incredible statistic for a financial services organization. Do you think that most financial services organizations are missing this point around engagement? Because, you know, they, without engagement, it's very difficult to upsell and cross-sell. So do you, do you think you're, again, quite unique in thinking about engagement first? Yeah, so I can actually give you some, some more updated numbers. So we've got actually, I think, about 3.2 million DAO uh, and just over 9 million MAO. So what we call the sticky factor, which is DAO divided by MAO, yeah. it's about 33%. But actually, you have to understand that in our ecosystem, we have a number of customers that are not really active. You know, They might have a credit card or a lending product that is not exactly the kind of customer that engages very much with the app. So if you take, for example, the debit card holders, which are the people that will come mostly for the app, for, for the rewards, for the lifestyle banking, that customer, actually, the sticky factor is already closer to 50%, meaning that they use the app on average every other day. And, and look, I completely uh, agree with your point, and that's, that, that was uh, our, our hypothesis as well, is that if your banking app can only provide the ability to check your balance and payments or send money to someone, it's unlikely that you will be able to build a very strong long-term relationship. And that's a pretty commoditized product and, and experience. Uh, you can make it slightly more, you know, more seamless, but at the end of the day, um, that's not what's going to differentiate you from the competition. The way you differentiate yourself, and again, the way we've in part differentiated ourselves is by giving an experience that is much broader, that is still very much linked with every single product that we have. So the more products you have, the more rewards you will get, the more access to certain products and, and promotions and services you will get. And that bit is a big differentiator for us and something that a lot of financial services providers not only haven't figured out, but even if they did figure it out, they probably would struggle to, to recreate because it's obviously quite a technologically advanced thing to do. And so you think that's the reason why we haven't seen more super apps in Europe, which is it's, it's a complicated thing to pull off? Or do you think it's more that people lack that same strategic vision? I think that's probably why you haven't seen them coming from banks, because again, I don't think that a lot of banks are actually capable of uh, of doing that. The reason we probably haven't seen them coming from the tech companies as well, maybe that's slightly more uh, specific to the markets or the culture. So I think the first big big hindrance is that if you want to create a super app, you need big scale. And if you think about Europe, you've got different languages, different countries, perhaps even different regulations. So to have you know, does it really make sense to have a, a super app for a small Central and Eastern European country? You know, it probably doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to that kind of model. That's one thing. The other thing is that perhaps in European and Western countries, people don't want to have all their data and all their experience in, in one bucket. Uh, and actually, perhaps over time, they've already grown with this idea that it's okay to have one platform for social media, one platform for search, one platform for e-commerce. While in other emerging markets, you've had companies that have, the, have had the ability to leapfrog and group a lot of these companies into a lot of these businesses into one, therefore operate, offering that, that super app experience. So there's clearly some players that are trying to do that. And I think, you know, Revolut is probably the one that's getting yeah. the closest to, to doing that. But I think it the jury is still out. In the US, right? And so, yeah, and Square yeah. in the US, correct. Um, but you know, the, the jury is the jury is still out. I think it will be a bit more challenging to do in Europe and Western uh, in the Western world than it will be in emerging markets. How important is content to acquiring customers and deepening engagement and lowering churn? Because I, I'm I'm not sure exactly the statistics, but they're they're pretty amazing as well, right? In terms of how many people read your content daily, how much time people spend reading that content. Yeah, so content is actually a huge part of what we do, and um, it's maybe something that we don't we don't talk about as much as we as we should. So, we have a business called Tinkoff Journal, 
which is one of the largest independent personal finance magazines in Russia that we offer completely for free. Uh, there's no advertisements. Uh, and that's purely educational and interesting content to tell people how to set up a company, how to maximize their rewards, how to save properly, how to open a brokerage account, whatever it might be that can help people actually become a little bit more financially educated. And we have something like 10 million monthly readers for this platform. Uh, and obviously that platform powers a lot of the stuff that we offer in the app. So when you come into the app again, it's not just about checking your balance and sending money to someone. It's about maybe checking if there's some interesting offers that might be there for you. And it's about seeing whether there's any content that might be interesting for you to learn. Um, the way we push this predominantly in the app is by having stories. So a storyboard similar to what you would have on Instagram or a Snapchat, where the difference being that it's not user-generated content, but it's content that we produce mostly again through Think of journal and that we tailor to the customers and we can target based on uh, all the algorithms that we have. Uh, and we do notice that quite, a, I think something like over a third of our customers use the stories every month in terms of when, whenever they go to the app. So they will just flick through, maybe find something interesting. And it's also a great way for us to cross sell products because you know, you'll show them a, a storyboard about uh, about how to save properly. And then at the end, you might be able to actually say, well, click here and you'll be able to open a, a brokerage account or you'll open a micro uh, saving account. Um, so it's a great way to engage with customers and to get them to do more stuff with you than they would if it was just a regular app. And you, you talked us through a number of the products that Tinkoff has launched. You know, you made the point that it started in banking and then you know, moved into into other areas from there. But what what is what is the strategy? What is the process you run through when you think about what's the next product to launch? For us, it's very much about customer journey. So we put ourselves in in the feet of the customer and we try to understand what this customer might want and what might they be open to trying if we give them that option. And you know, so for example, in the lifestyle banking, you mentioned travel, and then we thought, what are other kind of high frequency services that we can aggregate into one place that would make our customers' life a lot easier? And so we went into restaurant bookings, where we started aggregating a lot of the restaurants and a lot of the uh, the abilities to uh, to to book a restaurant from from one place. Cinema was one of the most popular, and actually, it's coming back after COVID, but um, was one of the most popular aggregators of services that we were able to simplify the customer journey into one place where they could find a cinema and book a, uh, book a ticket, choose their, their seat anywhere. So for us, it's a lot about the customer journey and understanding where it would make sense for them to do a transaction with us. At the same time, we do have pretty strict principles about how much we want to spend and where, you know, we don't want to get into businesses where we're going to be burning tens of millions uh, of dollars a year without actually forecasting some kind of profit. So the only reason we would run a business on a break-even level or even a, a slight loss at times is because it does drive engagement or it brings in millions of customers. And so we have a few of those products in the ecosystem. But other than those, every product that we launch for us has to be has to have a meaning on a standalone basis. And that meaning most of the time needs to be some kind of bottom line generation. It's sometimes it's difficult to think of you as being a digital bank because it's much more now of a lifestyle service, right? The really rigorous focus on new economics, again, is not normally something that you would associate with a bank. And then this whole approach to the way you think about acquiring customers and monetizing those customers, again, sort of sets you apart from most digital banks. So do you, do you even consider yourself still to be a digital bank or do you, do you think you've, your model is, is difficult to define as a digital bank? I think at the core, we still have a digital bank, but that digital bank is part of a bigger, and again, 
Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a non-buzzword to describe this, but it's part of a bigger ecosystem where the bank provides lots of benefits and lots of good experiences to the customers, but is only part of why people would choose Tinkle. Uh, so again, the ability to offer content, the ability to offer non-financial services, supercharges that that banking experience. So we, we, we've definitely moved beyond that. But at the core, we still do think that financial services is our main area of expertise, the main area where we're going to be able to uh, monetize our customers. And so we are an ecosystem, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we want to get into everything uh, and anything uh, and spend any kind of money to get to get there. Uh, we want to pick our battles uh, and pick those battles where we eventually will be able to, to monetize the customer. And as a strategist, do you think that the really unique part of your business model, the, the magic, if you like, is the is is the fact that you you're basically an amalgam of pretty semi-autonomous units, all of which kind of wash their own face, if you like. They all have to have positive unit economics, but at a group level, we're all contributing to the the success of the overall group by you know sharing data, spreading the cost of IT. Is that the way you think about it? That it's that it's that that that's the magic. It's this combination of you know, having units that are close to the customer that have to move quickly, that have a lot of autonomy, and then bringing them all together into into a synergistic group structure. I think that's a huge competitive advantage that we have, and that's something that differentiates us from a lot of other banks and even Russian companies, which can be extremely hierarchical uh, and bureaucratic. We've always built our business on a very horizontal level, very flat organization, and giving lots of, of responsibility to the people that can be very close to the customer and to the product. And so, as you rightly mentioned, every one of our business lines basically is its own mini mini startup, you, you can say. So it's got its own management team, its own head of the business line. It will have its own technologists, its own marketing people, its own user experience, sorry, user interface experts, et cetera, et cetera. And so these people can feel ownership of what they're building. And so their motivation to to actually build something that's outstanding is obviously higher. And they're very close to the customer. So they actually can create a product that is solves a problem or, or satisfies some kind of need. Obviously, that is supplemented by some platforms that run across all of these businesses. And without which, obviously, then we wouldn't be able to create an ecosystem. It would just be a bunch of individual businesses yeah. that would be working on a standalone basis. So the marketing platform, the acquisition platforms, the servicing platforms, those are all platforms that run horizontally across the organization and that basically ensure that we're all rowing in the same direction. And then of course some business lines will work more closely with some others. So for example, you know, our point of sale lending business works very closely with our credit card business because we realize that one is a great um, acquisition channel for the other business line. So within also those businesses there will be some relationships that are more that are, that are stronger and that need to be developed more. But at the core, you do, you, having those platforms that just make sure everyone rows in the same direction is a big differentiating factor between creating an ecosystem and a conglomerate of different goods and services that are just accessible through an app. In terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example, do you, do you share data between all these different autonomous or semi-autonomous units in order to train common models for, for risk, for fraud, to help identify, you know, to understand people's context and be able to set them up relevant advice and offers. So presumably at the group level, you're pooling data in order to create data network effects. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, so obviously subject to, to the regulation and what we can do with the data, any data that is stored within a certain organization can be shared within that organization. The way we've thought about AI and the way we're looking to develop our AI knowledge is to create what we call an AI center, which is basically a repository of all the AI knowledge that we can have in the bank and ranging from all the way to research and development from the kind of back office optimization and figuring out what the right uh, structure for that should be. And that AI center ends up being a, a supplier of information and solutions to any other business. Uh, and so any other business can come to this AI center and say, I would like to think about doing this. Where can AI help us with this? And so it's a central place where all that knowledge is stored. And as part of that center, one of their goals is also to try and instill in everybody a culture of using AI, because the idea that we want to develop is that in order for AI to really be used successfully in the organization, it's something that not only the software engineers need to be able to get their head around, it's something that the product people need to be able to get around to use, uh, the marketing uh, team and the finance team, everyone needs to be able to be to, to use AI at some point, not just people that are super qualified to do it. The way we're, in one of the best ways that I've uh, that I've heard about it is that it needs to be as easy as Excel and as powerful as a, as a super supercomputer. So something that is really just accessible to everyone, and obviously that requires uh, a lot of education and a lot of you know, pushing that culture and making sure that it is ingrained everywhere in the organization. And how does it work with those shared services? Because you said you know that it works a little bit like the the business units are their clients, but do, do the business units then have to pay for that service? How does that get incorporated into the unit economics of all of those units? It might not necessarily. So again, we do have, it's not like every single cost that uh, that, that happens in the bank uh, or in the group is associated to an individual business line. We do obviously have some headquarter costs and some, some, some corporate costs that are kept separate, uh, and then they might get allocated at some point with regard to certain decisions. But this uh, is one of those things that I would think we wouldn't necessarily be assigning to individual business lines. I, I guess the difference here is you consider yourself to be a technology company, and I guess that's the reason why you build all of your own systems. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. So there's very few instances where we actually use partner products or partner solutions because we want to control the entire value chain. You know, we've historically competed on service and, and product. Uh, and the only way really that you can have full control over that is if you develop everything in-house, because then you'll know exactly what the user experience is and you can predict in advance where might be the hiccups. So one of the perfect examples of that is our acquiring business, where we are the bank acquirer, we are the payment service provider, we are the payment gateway, and we have our own aggregator. And so we can offer the entire suite all developed in-house. And so when a customer or a merchant needs to choose an acquirer, we can always ensure that it's going to be the smoothest process to actually integrate ourselves with the merchant. And that if something were to happen, we're going to be the first ones to fix it because we've, we can see exactly what might have happened because we've got full control over the entire uh, chain of, of events. Um, and that's just one example in acquiring, but that applies to pretty much everything else that, that we've done. We try to do everything as, as much as possible in-house because it allows us to actually compete on the things that we want to compete, which is service. Why do you think that hasn't worked for other banks? Because so many banks historically built their systems and now they're in kind of a bit of a legacy mess, right? Because they've added and added to those systems and they've become you know, difficult to upgrade expensive to maintain. So how are you confident that won't happen to Tinkoff? And, and, and do you think you might start to use third-party technology as you continue to broaden the ecosystem and move further and further outside of banking? 
So I think at the at the core, we will try to still develop as much as possible uh, in-house. I think the reason why we are able to do that and a lot of other banks aren't able to do that is because we can get the talent. Um, so we've built a, a culture, uh, an HR culture and an IT culture that rivals those of the tech companies and not those of the banks. So, you know, we compete with talent, not with the banks, but with the Yandexes, the mail are used, the Ozones, etc. cetera. And um, by, if you get the best talent, then you can build the best products and the best tech. If, you, if you've let that opportunity go and you've let your culture evolve into something that's really outdated, then it will be very difficult for you to get rid of that image and to actually attract the talent that allows you to, to build those products. And so you inevitably have to rely on third parties to try and catch up. But then you know that, that leads you to all sorts of other integration problems with the third parties, which we try to, to avoid. So you've brought up two interesting points that I want to quickly delve into there. The first is around how you're seeing the perception, the branding of, of Tinkoff. To what extent do you think you're seen as, as a bank versus as a technology company? And, and how does that differ depending on the stakeholder? Because, you, you know, you, potential employees might see you as a tech company, but it might be fair to say that the market investors still consider you to be a bank. So to what extent do you think it's difficult to manage multiple facets of the of the brand? Yeah, look, it's it's obviously been something that, especially when I was in investor relations, uh, that took a lot of my time to try and tell people and explain to people why we're more than a traditional bank, right? Uh, look, I think from a from an employee perspective, we've got a you know, we've got to nail down. We are we are attracting some of the top talent. We're one of the top three brands in Russia for IT talent, and we get rewarded for our IT culture and IT programs uh, all over uh, all, all the time. And we have all sorts of educational programs where we try to go to the best universities in Russia, sponsor programs, and try to pick up people early on and grow them in the company. Um, and you know, it's it's more than just empty words or words on the paper because we actually do have a track record of people who started very junior in the company and are running entire business lines because they've stayed at the company for seven, eight years uh, and they've progressed uh, in, in their career. From an investor perspective, yes, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> um, we do have a lot of our revenues that is still coming from financial services and mostly credit services. And there's this perception that a credit business in a country like Russia is a high-risk business that does not necessarily deserve a high multiple. But I think we're finally getting rid of that idea, partly because well, we've showed, you mentioned it at the very beginning, that we've gone through three crises and we've never made a loss, despite having a, a consumer book that on paper looks like it could be uh, risky. So again, we're showing time in, time out that to the market that we know how to lend through throughout various cycles. We now have a number of businesses that are non-credit that you could argue are more fintech in terms of uh, what people would would associate naturally with fintech. And so those businesses generate almost 40% of our revenues and net income. So again, moving a little bit away from that, uh, being a, a pure financial player. And I think that if we were a pure financial player or purely a bank, you wouldn't be able to see the kind of growth rates that we are seeing now and the kind of cheap acquisition costs that we're seeing now, especially in things like debit cards um, and think of investments. So, you know, it's, it takes time, but hopefully we're moving. Well, I think we're moving in the right direction in terms of convincing all, not only our employees that we're a tech company, but the broader stakeholder base. Yeah. And, you know, and the profitability is not like a bank either, right? I mean, uh, just looking at the financial report for 2020, and you had a return on equity of over 40%, which again is not, you know, it's difficult to find examples of banks that are getting return on equity of 40%. Yeah, and I think the 
the bottom line is that there's different ways in which you can do banking. <laughs> and if you do banking in a very technological way with certain principles, then it looks very little like the traditional banking that we we're used to. And the second point I wanted to touch on from what you said was around culture, right? So I, again, I've been looking through your investor presentation and, and you talk about having no hierarchy and no bureaucracy. And then I remember Dimitri, when we, when we recently did the 4 by 4 virtual salon, talked a lot about how entrepreneurial the company is and, you know, and how he sort of leverages that entrepreneurial spirit within his group. And my question is, how do you sustain that as you get bigger and bigger? Do you think, again, it's down to the business model and the organizational model? How do you, how do you ensure that kind of that entrepreneurial spirit and the flatness of the organization doesn't get diluted over time? Yeah, look, it's it's obviously an interesting question, especially as you scale up a business and you have to put some structures in places and some checks and balances and, and more and more of those kind of decisions. Uh, look, it obviously started off with our founder, who is a serial entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, especially when the company started and for the first, let's say, 10 years or so was very involved in the business. And so he instilled in everyone this kind of entrepreneurial culture where, you know, you, you give responsibility very early on and you expect high results and everyone tries really hard because everyone sees the business as, as their own. So it, it is an interesting question. And again, I think trying to maintain the organization as flat as possible and trying to delegate as much responsibility down the chain as possible is is key and so far so far we've managed hopefully we we can we can continue to do that for for a long time and then does that make it difficult to hire i suppose people laterally you know so for example is it quite difficult to hire bankers and bring them into tinkoff and have them adapt culturally to how tinkoff works well, I can I can say that I'm the only banker that has joined laterally. Maybe one of two or three bankers that has joined laterally uh, to think of. We always prefer to to hire young and 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 grow inside the organization. Um, and if we are to hire laterally, banks are normally the last place we look. <laughs> Fair enough. I also talk about there's another in this. This is in the same diagram from the investor presentation. You talk about a culture of test and learn, and. Now, there's always been this tension with, you know, in the fintech space between the tech and the fin, you know, the extent to which you can behave like a tech company, you know, fast iteration cycles, you know, uh, and on the other hand, conform with regulation and be a, a regulated entity. How do you reconcile the test and learn culture with the need to be a serious regulated entity at the same time? The, the, the regulation sets the boundaries for where you're going you're going to test and learn, of course. So you're not going to go beyond where, uh, where where the regulation tells you 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 can't go, but the test and learn is it can be applied to so many various parts of, of the business from a specific business line where you might want to test the elasticity of your take rate of a specific loan to the interest rate that you charge, all the way to we should launch a business line. Let's do some tests around. <clears throat> whether there's any demand for that and how much money we would need to start spending and let's try with an MVP and, that, and then grow it out. So for us, test and learn is again, much more about culture and much more about telling people, look, if you have an idea, here's a budget, go ahead and try it out. You have certain frameworks that you cannot deviate from. And one of them is regulation. The other one is most likely going to be NPD uh, and the fact that you need to assess this idea within an NPD framework and off you go. And that's, again, it actually links up very well with the previous question that you asked me, you know, how do you maintain that entrepreneurial spirit? I think giving everyone the ability to try something out 
if they have an idea, is by definition what an entrepreneur would want to do. Uh, and so it does tend to attract those kind of people. And that's how you keep that culture uh, over time. We've talked about the ways in which you're different from a traditional bank. You know, I mean, you know the list is, is pretty long, so I won't recap it. But you would also differentiate yourself or draw a big distinction between your model and that of a normal challenger bank or normal digital bank. So would you, would you care to just slightly elaborate on that, how you consider yourself to be different from other digital banks? Our approach has always been, let's bring customers in, not just for the sake of bringing customers in. So let's bring customers in with a specific purpose and a specific path to then potentially monetizing those customers over time. And that oftentimes means that we, we need to bring in a customer and then build a very deep relationship with them. So we need to become their primary bank. Uh, and you know, if you look at the average balances that we have for our debit card holders, there are multiple times where you wouldn't find in a UK challenger bank. Because once we bring that customer in, we work really hard to make sure that we're their main financial part. And then we developed certain, a number of other products that can lengthen that lengthen the relationship that you're going to have with that customer. While if you're a one-trick pony like a lot of uh, a lot of fintechs, then you've built a very superficial relationship, maybe the second, third, fourth, and then it's only at some point you're going to have to figure out how to actually make money from that customer and justify your business. So we've we've taken that the you know we 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 flipped it on it on it on its head. And the other thing is that for us, there's never been a choice between growth and profits, um, yep. and so we've always married the two. Uh, partly by, by virtue of necessity, because in Russia, when we started, there wasn't much in terms of venture capital. There's probably even less now than, than, than there was back then. And we had an entrepreneur which was laser focused on bottom line. So for us, we always had to find a way to grow and make money at the same time. And the, the, let's call it the holy grail of, of us doing that has been the NPV approach, where any dollar that we try to spend on acquisition or on developing a certain business line we try to do it in such a way that we think it's going to generate a certain rate of return over time. And that rate of return that we use internally is at least 30%. So we, we build models, we build predictive models, we build decision models, scoring models that all allow us to build some kind of prediction of how the customer is going to behave with us over a long period of time and to make sure that we can optimize the offering, the product, the channel, so that at some point that dollar that we spent at the very beginning will actually generate something for our shareholders down the line. So. You know, we we've obviously refined that that the philosophy over time, and we still apply it to basically everything that we do. And I think that's one of the key reasons why we've been able to grow and make money at the same time. I think the other thing that I would add is you, you unlike a lot of digital banks, you've you've never been scared to do lending, right, or to lend your balance sheet, because a lot a lot of digital banks. I agree with you. I think they, you know, they don't have the same laser focus on unit economics. Right, so they so they they spend a lot to acquire customers without necessarily knowing how they're going to generate enough lifetime value to make for that to make sense. But the other thing is they often don't lend, right? And it seems that if you're going to do a lending business, sorry, if you're going to have a banking business, lending is really at the heart. Right? Would you agree with that? And do you think that also contributes to strong lifetime value and and unit economics over time? Absolutely. So you know, we've had a banking license from day one which enabled us to go into deposit taking and, and, and lending. And look, I think the market had a phase where lending was almost like a dirty word that you didn't really want to, and everyone seemed to be doing fine with e-money licenses and with, uh, with, with bringing in hundreds of thousands or millions of customers with a cheap, uh, if not free, debit card product. 
only to at some point realize that that's not a product that's monetizable. And when investors start knocking at the door and actually starting making money, well, the best way for me to make money and to, and to not only... The other thing is that a lot of people focus on break-even, but a business yeah. is not meant to be break-even. A business is meant to return more than its cost of capital. And so the only real way to do that, okay, there are some non-credit products where you can do that. And again, we have several of them, but one of the more successful ones is definitely lending. So you take deposits and you lend them out. And if done well, that can be an incredibly high LTV business that can resist shocks. I think that a lot of people have been, a lot of investors and a lot of the people in the market have been kind of scarred by some poorer lenders and how badly they've done in some economic cycles, then now everyone, everything just got painted with one brush as something that I don't want to touch. But I think the tide is starting to turn, partly because you know in our case, we've been able to show that you can do that crisis in, crisis out. And partly because actually a lot of those fintechs that used to pride themselves on having an e-money license and not having any lending products, they're all getting banking licenses and they're all starting to lend. So <laughs> there was there is a realization that that's definitely a business that that fintechs should have and can be done in a very technological way and in a way that increases LTV. Uh, and actually, I was I was reading about this bank in Brazil called C6, which is one of the few ones that actually has started out right from what I can understand at least right out started right out from um, uh, with a lending product because they realized that lending is the best way to increase the lifetime value of your customer. And just to talk about COVID, again, just bring it up again. I mean, you talked about it in the beginning as, as the third of the crises that Tinkoff has faced. But in some ways, do you think it might actually be a fit-up for the business in the sense that it's accelerating underlying trends and therefore it's probably making your value proposition even more compelling than it was pre-crisis? To what extent do you think that's the case and to what extent is that being borne out by the data, the customer growth and so on that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So at first, it was obviously a shock, and we had to pull some levers that we knew how to pull uh, in terms of making sure that the business was going to be stable and and and, uh, and withstand the shock, which no one really could predict how deep and how long it was going to last. Right? We've obviously benefited from the fact that in Russia, this shock has been pretty short-lived and actually relatively shallow and, and, and V-shaped. Um, and so it actually hasn't triggered that much of a shock to the economy or to the banking sector. But Obviously, for those few months where you had lockdown, it was all about who could actually keep doing banking in a uh, engaging way and still open bank accounts with a physical meeting and still and still offer uh, products that were relevant to our customer base. And those uh, those companies that could actually adapt to the situation and tailor their products and their services to the situation. And so we we started implementing a number of of initiatives to uh, to make sure that our offering was very relevant to what the customers wanted to to satisfy or to achieve for in the case of SMEs we really supercharged our ability to to help businesses build their websites to install online payments to we could lend them out our call centers because obviously a lot of companies didn't have the ability to communicate with customers so to make sure that we had the flexibility and the, the time to market to really come up with these new solutions and, and, and make our offering relevant, that's something that definitely was noticed by our customers that realized, well, these guys actually can help me out when I need, uh, when I need help. Uh, and so actually, ever since COVID, we've seen exponential growth in a number of our products, namely our current account uh, and Tinkoff Investments, which you know, uh, like a lot of other retail brokers around the world, uh, has, has had a, a great time over the last year or so. 
I think we've been able to really show off our, our skill set when it comes to the ability to adapt to the environment. And of course, from a digitization perspective, things have accelerated. We don't think it's been necessarily a seismic shift. So it's not like every person that used to go to the branch now only uses the app, but definitely some cohorts of the population that were maybe on the fence now have been forced to discover that actually you don't need to go to a branch. It's actually perfectly fine to have a bank that can do everything from your mobile. So it, it definitely it hasn't been a seismic shift, but it has accelerated some of the trends that we have been betting on for forever. How much runway do you think there is for growth within the domestic market? Because ostensibly, at least, there seems to be lots, right? Because you've got about 13.5 million customers. There are 144 million people in Russia. But presumably, your services are very, are very appealing to a certain demographic. So do you think you can sustain the growth rates that you've seen over the last few years indefinitely? Yeah, so actually, this is something that we discussed quite at length during our strategy day. Um, we have a lot of customers. So we have, as you rightly mentioned, about third, over, just over 13 million total customers, about 9 million of which are active. We still see not only a great ability to grow the number of customers, because Russia still has more than 100 million economically active population, but we still huge, see huge potential to do more business with each customer. So the targets that we've talked about are that we, you know, we had 9 million active customers at the end yeah. of 2020. We think we can go over 16 and a half million by the end of 2023. And very importantly, we can grow the number of products per customers from the 1.3 products, 1.4 products per customer that we had at the end of 2020 to at least 1.7 in a few years time. And another way to look at it is that in terms of the revenue pools that we are attacking in Russia, our net revenues in, in 2020 were about $1.4 billion. And in the main business lines where we are currently present, we see those that revenue pool being more, more than fifty billion dollars. So still almost forty times our existing revenue pool, uh, our existing revenue. So still huge potential, and that's only with the businesses that we currently have. There's a number of other businesses that might be adjacent to what we're doing now, and we've mentioned on the on the, at the strategy day, uh, BNPL or leasing or some other kinds of insurance um, that could bring that addressable market even further. And so, you know, we, we've obviously grown a lot, but in many respects, we're still scratching the surface. And again, one way to look at that is that we've only got 2% market share of all retail lending in Russia. And is that the reason why you haven't expanded overseas? You know, you, you, at the start of this podcast, you talked about the fact that it'd be very difficult to recreate Tinkoff in another European country because of the scale effect and, and, and other factors. So if you can't create Tinkoff in Europe, why not take Tinkoff to Europe? So historically, we haven't really looked that much outside of Russia because there was so much to do. And you know, over the strategy period between 2016 and 2020, we launched eight business lines. Um, and so there was we, management's focus was entirely on scaling up those businesses, making sure that the unit economics made sense and they were businesses that we wanted to be in. And at the same time, we were generating 40, 50, 60, sometimes even 70% ROE that it felt like there yeah. was really no need to go out and, and look for additional uh, kind of uh, ways to deploy capital. So Russia still remains our main focus. Uh, it's the place where we know how to make business. We know and have the confidence to disrupt and where we're going to be generating our uh, our returns for the foreseeable future. 
We have looked up outside of Russia before, and again, partly because we were very focused uh, on Russia, we didn't, but also partly because some of the markets that we had looked at, uh, mostly in emerging markets, weren't quite ready or weren't quite suited to the Tinkoff business model. Um, but more recently, we have started talking about international expansion again. And it is still a little bit premature. And to some extent, we're still figuring out what the right framework is in terms of assessing potential opportunities. But it does look like there might be some areas or some geographies where a Tinkoff-like business model could actually work. So I'll probably leave that as a, as a bit of a teaser. Uh, yeah. And it's not actually something that we've, we've incorporated in our 2023 strategy, uh, but it could be, you know, a little cherry on top of that strategy that we uh, that we that we showed a, a few weeks back. Yeah, because the, the the beauty of the business model is that you could create, you know, a, a pretty small unit or business business line outside of Russia that would again benefit from all of the group network effects. That you could probably again apply a very conservative or very rigorous unit economics threshold to. So you wouldn't be it wouldn't be like you'd be taking a massive gamble anyway, right? Is that yeah, and again, it, 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 to the extent that we can try and recreate the Tinkoff business model, it means um, going in with a more of a, with a test and learn approach, uh, with a monetizable product that can help us get to the you know get, get to a positive bottom line and make the business uh, self sufficient. Uh, again, we're not in the business of going somewhere and spending hundreds of millions of dollars for um, for years, perhaps, and then at some point trying to monetize it. So I think to the extent that we will decide of going outside of Russia, it will be very much uh, in a Tinkoff-like way. And you recently made a VC investment. Do you think you might be looking to make other VC investments? Is that, is that another way in which you might expand internationally? I don't think that's necessarily the, the base case. I mean, this was a pretty uh, specific case in that it was two of the top managers of Tinkoff Group that decided to go and start their own business in, in Europe. And obviously, we knew them very well. We have high, we we hold them in high regard, and they're building something quite quite neat in Europe. So, I don't think I don't know how many other managers want to leave Tinkoff to go and start a, a startup somewhere. Uh, I don't think all that many. So, I don't think that necessarily VC will be the way that we decide to go abroad if we decide to go abroad. But it's definitely been uh, a very useful experience for us because obviously we talk to these guys and they're telling us how, what they're what they're seeing, the challenges they're facing, and they're basically testing the Tinkoff DNA and the Tinkoff culture outside of, of Russia. And it's, it's, it seems to be working, which gives us some confidence that if we decide to at some point go outside of Russia as Tinkoff, then we, we probably have what it takes. And then the last question I want to ask you was about M&A. So Spearbank does a lot of M&A. You've done very, very little M&A. Do you think that might change or do you think that building everything yourself organically is just so intrinsic to the business model and the DNA of the company that, that, that won't change. Yeah. So we've done a little bit of M&A in the past, and, but you're right in that most of the time we've tried to develop, it, develop everything in-house. More recently, we've said that we do think there's potential for some bolt-on acquisitions in Russia, but nothing transformational and only those businesses that either can very much complement an existing product that we have and maybe where it it's a very competitive environment where your time to market could be a little bit too long if you were to do it in-house. And if there's a good culture fit, it might actually make sense to, to bring it in-house right away. Or maybe something that, that can actually 
supercharge your customer growth. Although uh, we don't, we might not necessarily that might not be the the top priority because we are bringing in a ton of customers anyways. So I think you know there is room for some bolt on acquisition, predominantly in the non credit businesses. But again. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We have suspended the dividend for, for this year to make sure that we have enough dry powder to, to perhaps uh, engage in some of these, uh, of these deals. But, you know, again, nothing has been formally decided, let's say. It's again quite unusual that you have an extremely fast-growing tech company that pays a dividend, right? Even in itself, that's quite an anomaly. <laughs> we always finish, or nearly always finish the podcast by asking for a few recommendations. So if you don't mind, could you recommend a favorite book yeah, I'm not. I don't know how creative this will sound, and maybe you know. But it's a book that I particularly enjoyed, and it was Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, so the founder of of Nike. I think it's just firstly, it's an incredibly well written book, but also I think it's a great book that communicates what it feels like when you've got that itch and that idea that you just can't get out of your head. And I think that all of us in our space, whether it's as an entrepreneur or as a manager or as uh, as an employee, we're all looking for that one idea or that, you know, gets us all excited and, and that we want to get out, go out of our way to achieve. So I think that was a great book to inspire people to look for that, for that idea. Favorite influencer? Yeah. So I don't know if this actually counts as an influencer. And again, I, I, t- I try to use social media mostly to just keep in touch with family and friends rather than following people I don't know. But there's this one guy who's absolutely crazy uh, when it comes to motivation and to mostly in, in working out and, and, and physical activity. And his name is David Goggins. And he is a former Navy SEAL ultra marathon runner, just an extreme guy that is good to watch his videos when you're feeling a bit unmotivated. Because I guarantee the moment, by the time you finish watching his videos, you'll be either working out like a maniac or going back to your desk and finishing that one thing that you really couldn't finish before. So it's just great motivation. Fantastic. Productivity hack. I was thinking about this and there's some small things like keeping your inbox clean that that obviously help. But I think the thing that has served me best is... It's on the one side, a productivity hack, and on the other side, something that helps me keep my work-life balance. And it's just to make sure that in my mind or in my calendar, I've got some pretty set amount of times uh, that I want to do a certain thing. So I said, I'm going to work until this time. And so I, knowing that I have this kind of mental deadline that I need to get done, get stuff done by that particular deadline gets me actually really productive because I know that after that deadline, I, will, I want to do something else. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know it's at that deadline at that time it's pens down and then uh, I'm not touching it again. But at least to have some kind of boundaries in your head actually forces you to work really hard in those hours. So it's a bit counterintuitive, but it's worked really well for me. And do you find that's become more necessary because you're working from home? Yeah, so it's actually been one of the challenges because now you're you know if, if before that deadline was pretty much imposed to you by leaving the office. Now your office is in your bedroom or it's in your living room. So you have to be a little bit more disciplined about the fact that, okay, I'm not going to work past 8 p.m. or at least I'm going to take a break after 8 p.m. Uh, and try to step away from your desk and not get close to it for a certain period of time. So that, that's definitely been something slightly more challenging. Last of all, a favorite brand. I think having told you Shoe Dog as the, as the book, I think Nike probably fits that, fits that bill. And again, I think... From Shoe Dog and then David Goggins, uh, you've probably realized I'm a pretty sporty person. And so I think Nike actually fits a lot of those values that I, that I associate myself with. What about Nike as a, as a business model? 
as a as a business model to emulate. I'm not actually all that familiar with it, but I think the the emotional connection that they've been able to build with with their customer base, and you know, we just we debate loyalty in a lot internally. Uh, you know, how do you get a customer to be loyal to you? And I think there is really no stronger loyalty um, than the loyalty you can build if you share the values, uh, the same values with your with your customers. Neri, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us all about. Tinkoff Bank, which is you know a difficult business, as you said, to describe and to pigeonhole, but certainly a, a fascinating financial services company. So thank you so much for sharing the story with us. My pleasure. And if anyone wants to reach out, uh, you know where to find us. It's www.tinkoffgroup.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.